Uh, guys, turn, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 21. We continue on this week with um, basically part two of a narrative that we began last week about a man named Naboth and his vineyard. And if you weren't here um, to hear about that, basically the gist of the story was that King Ahab wanted this vineyard that backed up to his property, but Naboth, its owner, refused to sell it to him for reasons we talked about last week. But King Ahab and Jezebel then conspired to take it by force. And they slandered this man. They falsely accused him. And they ended up having him killed so they could have access to his property. And the fortunate thing about what we're going to read today is we're going to see that that is not the end of the story, but it continues on. And God's word lets us know that injustice does not ultimately win. So, if you would, stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. We're looking at verses 17 through 29. Again, this is 1 Kings 21, 17 through 29. Uh, And I had turned in my Bible to 1 Samuel. That's not right. There we go. This is God's word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. I'll make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil on the side of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, just as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And so the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts in these next few moments would be pleasing in your sight. We ask and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for standing. You guys go ahead and be seated. Uh, So we start with a question this week. It's kind of rhetorical. I just want you to think of it on your own. And it's this. Of all the attributes of God, Which one, which thing about God is the most attractive to you that you love the most? His mercy. That's a great answer. His 
tender affection, his fatherly love towards his people, I can imagine. Maybe if you're more sort of cerebral, you think of uh, God's omniscience, the fact that he knows all things, or his sovereignty, that he's sovereignly in control of whatsoever comes to pass. All these things are answers I've heard throughout my time as a minister about the the thing that just makes people's hearts sing about their Father God. But one answer that I don't think I've ever heard someone say to that question is, I love God's judgment for sin. I love his justice. That one, like I said, I don't think I've ever had somebody tell me in all my years as a pastor. Now, I'm thinking of that because I came across this article this week as I was studying for the sermon. It's an article written by um, an Old Testament scholar. And don't throw it up quite yet. Uh, I'm going to give it some context. Thanks, Michael. Um, The guy's name is uh, Christopher J.H. Wright. You know, I know him as Chris. Me and him go way back. Um, But he's an Old Testament scholar from England, and he was writing in this journal about a seminar he did in the 80s in India. The topic of the seminar was Old Testament ethics. So he says he has this young student run up to him before the first lecture and says, I have been waiting for this. I am so excited because it was in the, you know, quote unquote, dry, boring parts of the Old Testament that I became a Christian. And so for Wright, who's an Old Testament scholar, that's just like buttering him up. He's like, ooh, tell me more. And so he says, well, you know, I, when I started at college, somebody gave me a Bible, which I didn't care about. Just threw it in a drawer somewhere. But one night, I just randomly opened up my Bible, flipped it to the first place that it landed, and I came across this weird, obscure story in the Old Testament no one's ever heard of, Naboth's Vineyard in 1 Kings 21. And the background of this fellow is that he was from a, a rural, very impoverished part of the country where corruption and oppression just reigned supreme. And so reading about what happened in Naboth, it struck a nerve in him. And actually, now now I'll I'll go over to what the actual article says. He was astonished to find that it was all about greed for land, abuse of power, corruption of the courts, and violence against the poor, things that he himself was all too familiar with. But even more amazing was the fact that God took Naboth's side. And not only accused Ahab and Jezebel of their wrongdoing, but also took vengeance upon them. Here was a God of real justice, a God who identified the real villains and who took real action against them. I never knew such a God existed, he exclaimed. Here was a God he felt attracted to, even though he didn't know him yet, because such a God would understand his own thirst for justice. So uh, let that sink in. If, if this young fellow was here and I asked the question, what attribute of God just really draws you and excites you? He'd say, God's justice. The fact that he's going to hold evil accountable and people that perpetrate evil accountable, they're going to have to answer for it. Again, there's not too many people that I know of that would answer the attribute of God question that way. In fact, most conversations I've had with folks around here since I've been ministering is that the justice and judgment of God really bothers them. They see it as a problem to be solved in the scripture. It reminds me of uh, C.S. Lewis, that book, Reflections on the Psalms, that we bring up sometimes here. He's talking about how 
we as a middle class, upper middle class, Western society folks sometimes really struggle connecting with the Psalms that talk about God's judgment, especially crying out, Lord, would you come and judge the world? Like, what's up with that? And what Lewis says is that it's because most of us probably have never lived lives that feel the weight of impression and injustice like the people in the Psalms were crying out for. But that's not true of everybody. There are many across the globe and many even in our own country who feel the weight of impression and injustice. And when they read in the Bible about a God who brings justice to bear truly in the world, that's irresistible to them. So before I go further down that path, what I want to do is just sort of uh, back up, get our bearings in the text and see, okay, how did this young man in India come to the conclusion that the God of the Bible is a God of justice from this story? Let's just make sure that we see that. But then I I want to pick up, we're going to return to his story because it goes on from there and it takes some twists and turns that might surprise you. But first, let's look at the text and See, what it is about this that says, hey, this is a God that holds evil accountable. Well, that might be very obvious to some of you guys, but it's worth saying. This text is about the Lord saying, I saw what you did to Naboth, and you will have to answer for it. That's what the prophet is saying to Ahab and Jezebel. Which, by the way, the return of Elijah this week, right? He's been absent the last few weeks in this text, but now he's back. And uh, he's got some colorful things to say, right? Verse, uh, I believe it's 21. I'll revisit it with you guys. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you, the Lord said. I will utterly burn you up, will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, which, by the way, Jeroboam's house is done. So God's saying, your dynasty, your legacy, your hope to have some sense of immortality through your children reigning and their children reigning, that's over. It's done. And then it goes on from there uh, with Jezebel. The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. What this is trying to say is that the, the honor of a burial, the dignity of having a funeral and, and burial of the dead body, that's not going to even be afforded to the people of Ahab and Jezebel's house, which was a huge deal in ancient Israel. It was one of the worst fates that could happen to somebody is that their body would be desecrated after death. These are the things by which the Lord says, I'm holding you accountable for what you did to Naboth. We can even add to that, though, because remember, Naboth, the, the way he was killed was he was slandered and falsely accused. Do you remember that from last week? They got those worthless men to say Naboth has cursed God, which he didn't. It was false. And yet no one knew that except for the people that were in on the plot. So when Naboth dies, his friends, his community, maybe even his family were under the impression that he was a criminal who died for blaspheming God. Until Elijah comes and declares what really happened, declares the truth. And Naboth, not only is there judgment that's being held out against the people that oppressed him, also his name is cleared 
Do you realize that? We know Naboth. Millions of believers that have read the Bible throughout the years know the name Naboth, not as a criminal, but as a godly man who was unjustly killed. That's how we know him. He's been vindicated by God. Now, I know that this does not always neatly happen to everyone who's experienced injustice in the world. It's not always that the oppressors uh, have to answer for their crimes in this lifetime. It's not always that somebody is vindicated in this lifetime. But this lifetime isn't all that there is. I think what this text is pointing to is that our God of justice is saying whether in this life or the next, evil will be held accountable. That's a guarantee. So this is what our friend Saul, the young man from India, this is what made him say, I never knew a God like this existed. But then he got a little bit disillusioned. Let's keep going. And this uh, article picks up, this is right after what I read to you before. But suddenly, unexpectedly, God is talking about forgiveness and pardon and love. I couldn't take that, he said. I was attracted to the God of justice and holiness. I ran away from the God of love. What in our text did he see that made him think that God was talking about forgiveness and pardon and love? How did it end? What's that, Joe? Ahab repents. <laughs> That's right. Ahab repents. And far from God saying, like, it's too late for that dude. God says, hey, Elijah, have you seen how Ahab humbled himself and repented before me? And he has mercy on him. This text does not end with Ahab dying at the walls of Jezreel and the dogs licking up his blood. Sorry to be morbid there, but that's what the text says. It doesn't end like that. It ends with God's mercy being shown to Ahab, the very person we've just been so excited about. He's going to be held accountable for what he did. Now God shows him mercy? No wonder the young student's like, I was excited about this God, but now I'm not. There's a tension in this text that it's really easy to just breeze right by. The reality is we are being told to accept that there is a God of unrelenting justice in this passage, but also a God of unrelenting mercy. Now, admittedly, let's do a little sidebar here. Admittedly, Ahab's repentance is it it raises a lot of questions. All right. You ask, is this sincere? Is it lasting? Well, to the sincere question, I mean, at least according to God's words in this this section he believes that it is he points out to elijah and he says look how he's humbled himself because of that i'll show him mercy is it lasting that's a more troubling question because we're going to see in the next chapter that ahab's back to some of his old problems and maybe even that's part of the reason why that the mercy shown to ahab is not like this uh deletion of judgment against him but rather a delay of the judgment He said, it's not going to happen in your lifetime. It'll happen for the generations after you. It's hard to say. 
And, and actually, in an earlier version of this sermon, the whole thing was going to be a, a deep dive on, on trying to figure out if Ahab's repentance was sincere or not. I decided not to go in that direction. I'd love to talk to you afterwards if you want to. But really, I thought the main thing that we needed to see is that there is a tension in this text that right on the heels of God talking about his justice comes this perplexing pronouncement of his mercy. Can you imagine the writer of 1 Kings, the chronicler, he's writing this down? You know, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it's not like he's in a trance writing things down. He's thinking and writing, and he's like, this doesn't seem too consistent here. (laughs) What's going on? Which is it, God, justice or mercy? Justice or mercy? But if our writer was savvy enough to know the other parts of God's word, he'd realize that that tension shows up everywhere. It's all over the place. A few weeks ago, I quoted for you guys Exodus 34 when the Lord introduces himself as God of steadfast love and mercy and abounding faithfulness. I cut that off too soon, though. Well, not too soon. For that sermon, it served its purpose. But I'm going to read the rest of the quote to you right here. So the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. He passed before Moses. He says, this is who I am. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. That's where I stopped. But it keeps going. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation? Which is it? In his same introduction, God says, I forgive the wicked. I do not forgive the wicked. What? It's in the minor prophets everywhere. Justice and mercy side by side. Even one of the minor prophets says they kiss. It's in our text that we read. Ahab, I'm holding you accountable for what you've done. Ahab, I see your humility. I'll show you mercy. What is going on? It is a paradox that can only be answered in one possible way. And you might know it already. The cross of Jesus Christ. When the Son of God offered his body on the cross, the fullness of justice and judgment against sin and brokenness and oppression showed up there. And the fullness of God's mercy and invitation to the broken And to the wicked and saying, repent and turn to me in faith. Both of those things are there in fullness on the cross. Not diluted. Not where one was compromised or the other was compromised or watered down. They both are there in full force. When Jesus offers his blood to be shed, his body to be hung on that tree. He takes all the weight of injustice and the things that we read about of God's judgment in this text. On himself. God's justice did not disappear in the New Testament. It was paid for by Jesus. But at the same time that he's doing that, he's reaching out to sinners and saying, if you repent and put your faith and trust in me, your debt is paid. Your sins are forgiven. If you turn to me and say, Jesus is my Savior, God's mercy is for you. I know you might be thinking, Josh, the Exodus passage, 1 Kings 21, it's way before Jesus. I know what I'm trying to get you to see is they were pointing 
towards the ultimate answer of this tension, the cross of Jesus. And if the Old Testament believers were saying, how can a God of mercy and a God of justice stand side by side in the same person? We get the answer in the gospel. I hope that that is ultimately what our friend from India saw. I've got a hunch that it might be. Let me read you the last little bit from that article. Uh, I'll uh, start with something that we read already. I was attracted to the God of justice and holiness. I ran away from a God of love, but he couldn't. For as he read on, he found such a God more and more, and he found out about the fullness of God's justice and love on the cross. He came at last to understand and surrender to the God he had found in the story of Naboth's vineyard. And his life was transformed through faith in Christ. His justice, his mercy, not competing with each other, but exemplified in fullness on the cross. That's what I see from 1 Kings 21. And as we come to the table here together, I'm hoping that that's what you realize. Going on with these symbols. So this bread, which by the way smelled delicious, I was sitting up in the front row when they brought that in. I was like, "This is distracting. I'm gonna eat some of this bread." This bread that Jesus gives his people, he says, "This is my body." What happened to his body? It was bruised and beaten and marred and killed. The justice of God and His judgment against sin is exemplified here. But remember, he also says, this is my body given for you. I gave it to extend mercy to you. So that when you eat it, when you take it, when you know what it symbolizes, you know that I gave it to invite you into my family of faith. All your sin is washed away. You have my perfect record. You are holy and blameless in the sight of God. God's justice and his mercy Again, here in fullness. And we could say the same thing about this cup of the new covenant in his blood. I wonder if that young student from India realized that the first time that he took communion, that he was taking the symbol of the very thing that had rocked his world. I hope that you'll see that as you take today. This uh, supper 